So have you successfully drained the swamp? I'm beginning to learn that it's it's less of a swamp and more of like a a hybrid of a clown car and revolving door. <laughs> uh so you so we we are setting history tonight. I don't I don't believe we've ever done one of these where one of us has been in a different time zone than the other. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't think that's happened. Uh, and you, you, you are joining us from the from the greater DC area. Is that an accurate statement? Uh, that, that's vague enough. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Oh, okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, don't want to give away your exact location, but yeah, most um, definitely. But yeah, you, you are, you are on the East Coast. You are, you are near our nation's capital, where before we started recording, you described the area um, as having a an orange haze over it. Which, which, which I think is to be expected. That was an offline uh, conversation that you're bringing online, <laughs> and and for my, for any future, like they're, they're going to take away my pre-check, and I'm going to have to take off my shoes. <laughs> right. and now. Uh, I'm going to get I'm going to get deported, even though I was born here. <clears throat> yeah, not don't don't take away the pre-check. That's that's important. Um, so it is, oh it my is God. Uh, I, I was real, I was really nervous when I was, uh, coming over here. Cause I was like, Oh shit. Cause I don't know why I was banking on the time that the plane departs rather than the time the, uh, the plane boards. I was like, Oh, that's a really stupid mistake to make. Uh, but luckily pre-check uh, security only took five minutes. It's pretty good. on the Yeah. See, morning. I, so here's my dilemma. So I, I was already someone prior to pre-check who I, I'm, I'm a planner, Carlos, this, this might not come as much of a surprise to you, but I, I'm one of those types of people who, you know, likes to plan out his trip. And as part of that, likes to get to the airport exceedingly early. I've always been that way and, and, and probably will continue to be that way. But that that's become a little bit compounded now that I have pre-check where I generally get through security really quickly, but I haven't really recalibrated the time that I, that I get to the airport. And I of course have this constant fear that if I do, the first time that I do that, there's going to be some issue with TSA pre-check or there's going to be some long line or something, and it's it's going to go horribly wrong. So now I just end up getting to the airport like two hours early. Before boarding or departure time? Yeah, before departure time. Yeah. Which, you know, like I I'm like, I don't know. I'm I'm the type of person where I I just I don't like the stress of being rushed. And I really don't mind once I'm through security going and having a beverage or something in the airport. Like that just doesn't really, it doesn't bother me to be there early. A beverage meaning like a couple of beers or uh, meaning a, a loose LaCroix? Uh, like, a, like a couple of beers or like a nice glass of wine. Yeah. You're paying, uh, paying airport wine prices. You are, but generally, you know, you're like, I, I don't travel for like work very often so usually i'm doing it for fun and so i'm on some kind of vacation or something so you know i can i can justify spending 14 dollars on my glass of pinot noir but still using the company card though <laughs> no 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 um i don't i don't, I don't even have a company card <laughs> oh sorry the company venmo account i forgot you work for a startup <laughs> right right yeah yeah um but yeah I, like i don't know pre-check is good and um you do worry that, like, for some reason, like, the lanes won't be open, or there's gonna be some weird thing where, like, the uh, your TKN number didn't get attached to the ticket, right? And then, like, that just screws up your whole thing. Because, yeah, wait, like, waiting at the airport is, is not necessarily a stressful thing, but it's also not necessarily a fun or productive use of time. 
And if you're vacationing, a lot of times you don't want to do work. So there's not a whole lot of busy time activities to do other than just what, uh, looking at Sporty the Dog's Instagram story. <laughs> Which, oh man, he is crushing it. Yeah, he's great. I mean, I, I I apologize for not telling you about him earlier, but yeah, he's he's the best. Him and him and Wilson are consistently highlights of my day. Yeah. Um. All right. Uh. Yeah. Do you want to jump right into follow up? I think that's this would be a short one. I think. I think so. I mean, we we should say, and you know, we'll also throw this out there as a caveat in case this is not a very good show. That probably part of the reason is because it is late your time and early my time so you know you know listeners this is a little inside baseball but we you know you and i have a i would describe as being a relatively um solid routine with the recording of this program and neither of us has ever recorded around our respective times right now so yeah so we're gonna be we're gonna be off our game yeah this is this is a uh this is a late afternoon podcast for you which is probably that's that's the worst time to be productive well, if it was next week and we were like post daylight savings time, I'd actually be recording this probably with a glimmer of sunlight still. And that would be that would be kind of crazy. Yeah, you can't podcast in daylight. That's that's no that's the shame sets in. Right. <laughs> that's right. Um, um yeah, so let, let's let's get into it. Let's get into the uh the follow up or the the FU as as you like to call it. Um we'll start with movie pass, maybe, because this is a Kind of, kind of a crazy story that actually was is being updated like minutes before we started recording here. Yeah, yeah. Late breaking news. Stop the presses. So we've known that MoviePass's business model is not sustainable long term, and that you know there's been this promise that there's going to be more to the service, you know, i.e., more value uh, to movie theaters, and. I think it's been a fair assumption for a long time that some form of location data gathering or something like that was was probably in the cards because they've you know MoviePass has been pretty explicit that it's it's a data play here. And earlier this week their CEO got on TV and started talking about how they uh can track people uh from the time that they leave the theater so they know where they're going, you know, they know it, what kind of restaurants they're going to or what kind of other activities that they're doing after a movie. Um, they, I guess the exact quote here was, we know all about you. We get an enormous amount of information. We watch how you drive home to the drive from home to the movies. We watch where you go afterwards, which, you know, just again, I don't think terribly surprising, but it is surprising in the sense of how tactless it was. So do you think that's mainly like just some CEO jackassery that's maybe a little bit out of touch with the actual product? Or do you think that's actually something they had actually considered? Uh, you mean that the feature itself? Well, just like like the, the discussion of the feature and if it actually ever existed. Because after this came out, there was um, a denial that, no, this is not a feature that we've implemented. And actually, they just released an update to the iOS App Store where they've removed any vestiges of location history style features on it. So do you think it's just a CEO kind of mouthing off about stuff they had just considered at one point? Or do you think this was actually ever really a thing? I think it was probably a thing in some limited form. I think it was something that they were likely testing. And then the way that 
what is their what is their CEO's name here? Um, Mitch Lowe. The way that Mitch, because you know we we generally like to refer to people as their first by their first name on the show. He he was probably somewhat speaking in CEO terms, as you put it. But I I also think that there's another issue here too, which is there's definitely a split with people and particularly probably between users and more executive level people where someone like Mitch would probably just not even view this as a big deal. In other words, them tracking how you get to and from the movie, that is just data that they would almost feel like entitled to, or at the very least, just not think it's that big of a deal. They're collecting it. But then you have lots of other people who would argue completely the opposite and say it's a huge invasion of privacy. So I, my guess is that that's also part of it, too, is that when he said it, he just didn't even think of it as like an issue. Yeah, quite possibly. And and this does have um, some history on the show because this feels exactly like remember that feature that Uber rolled out where it was allegedly to improve like pickup and drop off points. But they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to uh, retain and collect your location information for like five minutes before and five minutes after your ride just to kind of figure stuff out. So it feels very, very, uh, a little uh, cactusy if a cactus was in a movie theater. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You don't want, you don't want cactus in your uh, movie theater. I think there's probably some, the AMCs in Arizona have, have cacti in them. <laughs> Perhaps. It's, it's, yeah, it's very thematic. Thank thank you for the, the real time correction with the uh, plural of uh, cactus. It's okay. You can, you can edit that out. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll fix that. Yeah. It's like when the daily, uh, either adds in or edits out um, hums. So it's the exact, <laughs> it's yeah, it's like the, yeah, secret sauce. I hope they, I hope they don't do that. I, mm, I assume it's, it's a tightly edited show. I don't think, I, I, it, I'm joking that it's probably ever added for effect, but it, they probably tighten it up as much as they can. That's, that's probably true, I guess. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to them. Yeah, we, we will. Um, Another sort of little minor piece of follow-up, uh, we last week or the week before talked about how we've seen more and more online brands have a physical retail presence. And there was sort of an interesting Adweek article, which uh, we'll, we'll throw in the notes here, which kind of reiterates the point that yeah, e-commerce brands, as this Adweek article puts it, have really found that there is this kind of interesting hybrid model where you predominantly stay online and you do most of your business there, but that having a physical retail presence, a limited physical retail presence can be really strategic and be a kind of a, a boost for your business overall, which, which I, I think is, is totally true. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't think there's a ton more to add about this, but it was a very interesting article. And I brought this up because there was, there's some new store in the mission that everybody was losing their minds over like last weekend. Uh, whatever the company Everlane is, I don't know what they do. Um, but yeah, that was a good quote from the CEO in this, which is it says a brand that has five or stores no longer makes sense in today's world. But having twenty to fifty key locations that help bring in an expression to the brand to life is very relevant for the customer, and we see people lining up to the space to come see parts of it. Yeah, I I, I think that totally makes sense, and you know, I I think a, a great example of this. Like, I don't remember if this was strictly an off-air conversation or, or if we did talk about it on the show. But the uh, the lady friend, her parents recently bought a Casper. I know, probably much to your chagrin, but 
um, but in my with my full support. And you know, we we have this Casper pop up store here in San Francisco, and I don't I'm not entirely sure that they would have ever actually bought one had they not been able to actually test it out in a in a physical retail store. I mean, they had you know they had our endorsement and and the experience that we've had with ours, but. I still think that with certain types of purchases, I, particularly with something like a mattress, there's just a lot of value in giving people the option to have a more traditional retail experience. Without giving away too much, how did they did they explain or did they clue you into how they knew about it? Or was it just word of mouth from you? Like They were like, oh, we're thinking of a new mattress, and you guys were like, hey... Uh go Casper or did they hear about it on some podcast or what's what was no, it, it, it was, it was entirely from us. Got it. I'm, I'm somewhat of a Casper brand ambassador. All right. You know, you're going to put Casper evangelist on your, on your business cards too. Yeah. 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 When I get, when I get the, uh, the model three, I'm going to put a, like a Casper, uh, bumper sticker or something. Ooh, did I, did I tell you I was, <laughs> I was thinking of getting a personalized plate and coastal elite was not taken really so yeah I was how would you c-s-t-l-e-l-t little little abstract but pretty good I, i'm i'm still still waffling on it yeah i'm not really entirely sure how else you would spell it but yeah i don't think there's a way you can throw a number in there that makes it make more sense but I, i'm very surprised it wasn't taken i think i can get like you know the one of the environmental plates to to double down on the message <laughs> Anyway. Uh, anyway, last piece follow up here, uh, the the HomePod, which is like like the tech product that neither of us wants to talk about, but just like can't stop talking about for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only reason we bring it up here in the follow up section is because uh, Jason Snell put out his review, and I, I really like I like his philosophy where you know he's come out and said, listen, if I'm not going to get an early review unit and, I, and I'm not going to be able to be the first wave of reviews there's not really much reason for me or much value for me to be able to push out a review quickly and instead it makes sense to live with the product for a little while and then put out a review after some longer period of time with the device i think that's really smart and that's what he did here with the home pod the review is very consistent with what he's talked about on upgrade and the secret uh, six colors uh, subscriber podcast but nonetheless, I, th- I think it's it's a really a really good read, and that'll be in the notes. And I think the more interesting article that came up this week, which we'll also put in the notes, was from Stephen Hackett, who uh, has a really interesting anecdote where he replaced the Echo in his family's kitchen with a HomePod. And the Echo, much in the same way I would describe the Echo here in our apartment, um, became sort of an integral part of their life at home. And when he replaced the HomePod, the Echo rather with the HomePod, there after a week or so was was widespread outrage amongst his family, and this eventually led to an intervention, and that resulted in uh, Stephen replacing the HomePod back with the with the Echo, which again I thought was a really interesting little anecdote, and it definitely speaks to me where. I mean, we've talked a lot about how the additional sound quality of the HomePod would not be much use to me and would would largely be lost on me. But 
I also do think that the, there would be a revolt by the, the lady friend if I tried to replace the lady in a can with, with the HomePod. What if your uh, Echo started laughing at you? <laughs> but no, so like with, with, with the two reviews that you just spoke of, so the only, the only caveat or, asset, uh, or a footnote I'd put around the, the Snell review thing is I, I did really appreciate it and I thought it was well-reasoned. And I, and I do appreciate that he, he does the, um, if, if you're not, if you're not first, at least let, take time and let it marinate and have something more, um, uh, interesting to say, I would say in a lot of the discussion on upgrade and prior to this, he leaned fairly heavily into the, well, it's an audio device first and therefore that's not what Apple's marketing it as, but I thought the like three week in review was much more balanced and much and ha- and had more more insight and then the Stephen hackett thing i thought was was absolutely spot on mm-hmm. yeah um all right that is a that is enough with home pod and and hopefully the last time we speak about it for for a little while um so getting into the the main stuff here do you want to go podcast stuff you want to make this a podcast about podcasting or do you want to get into the the apple stuff well yeah let's talk about successful podcasts so that way there's not a, lot, a whole lot of overlap Okay. Um, yeah. So this this has been a kind of a weird week. Um, so there was an article in uh, Wired by Felix Salmon uh, that was talking about the rise of daily news podcasts. Um, actually, that's kind of a weird lead for it, just because um, a lot of it was talking about serial and some of the um, more sensational, kind of like the true crime stuff that's been taking hold. Um, but the third part of it was about the daily and how that became way more successful than they ever thought it would be and how they've been able to expand the budget and make it um, kind of a prestigious cornerstone of what the New York Times digital team does online. So I thought it was a, a fairly interesting write-up. Um, but probably like the more interesting part or uh, about the New York Times' strategy is they have a new show this week that came out that they actually subbed in to uh, the, the daily feed called change agents so i have to admit i my gut reaction was being pretty upset (laughs) when this happened yesterday when you know mikey b came on and explained what was happening i I was really off put by that but and i i I very briefly considered just (laughs) just marketing as played and moving on Mm -hmm. but i did listen to the episode and i actually actually did thought uh, think it was really good definitely reminded me of like a segment from this american life like when you know this american life's traditional like three-part kind of um show um layout <laughs> um this reminded me very much of like an act two of that you know um so i actually thought it was 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 pretty good but I thought what they had done the day before where they, they played a little trailer for it, which I, I also thought it was kind of funny. They referred to clips from a podcast as a trailer, but anyway, um, I thought that was enough on the marketing push. I, I thought playing an entire episode in the feed was maybe a little much, but again, because it was actually a pretty interesting episode, I ended up, I guess, not minding it as much. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, that that is kind of tricky. Like, you'd maybe want to think that they would pull, like, they would do, like, a 538 style thing where when they do want to call attention to a new show or something else, they will just, um, as Jody says, drop it into the feed um, rather than replacing the, the content that you probably want to hear. Um, yeah, personally, though, I, I actually didn't 
care for the show that much. Um, and, and it makes me question is the wrong word, but, um, what exactly is like the New York Times's strategy with digital audio? Because this isn't really a news program. This seems like more of just a general purpose entertainment podcast, which is which is fine. And um, like, even though I didn't love this episode, like it, it's totally fine for them to do that. But is that what they're the best at, or what they should be doing? Like, what what is your thought on them being more of just a general entertainment provider? It definitely doesn't seem like it would be in their wheelhouse, as you would say. Whereas the Daily, when it was first announced, that made 1,000% sense to me, and I instantly got excited about it. This, this I don't feel the same way about. But I would also caveat that by saying, I think the success of the Daily has given them you know, the leverage to try other things and you know i think as long as the quality of the daily continues to remain the same if they want to put additional resources into other podcasting efforts i'm i'm fine with that yeah i I just think the difference is that like the whole entire point of the daily is to inform the public about the news in a unique way and as a kind of like an auditory medium for to like showcase like as Barbara always says like the journalistic engine of the times and that's exactly what it does really successfully this which is maybe semi like factually based narrative stuff like uh, i don't know we'll, we'll, we'll see how it goes um it's probably not something that i would subscribe to but um the fact that this exists does make me curious for what else they're going to do because like the other stuff they branched out into would like um I think we talked about it last week, uh, the new Washington. And then they also had that, what was the name of the show they had, um, before the election? Oh, um, not the upshot. It was something else, but it, it wasn't, it, it was somehow related to the upshot. Wasn't it? Uh, it was called the run up. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah like, so all right. of those do make sense. Whereas this seems less so, but again, as long as it doesn't affect the quality of the daily, like I, I have no right to complain or anything like that. It's just, it's, it, I, I think it's, it's interesting. I hope it's not somebody like that gets a bunch of success and thinks, let's try a whole bunch of other stuff just because it's semi-related. You know, like, uh, what's his name? Who's the guy from the Bulls? Michael Jordan playing baseball. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I think, I mean, one one good sign, though, I think is, like, with uh, the new Washington, which I actually just finished listening to uh, in the last week, even though I think that was a program that was probably doing really well and, again, made a lot of sense for what the New York Times does, they still ended it after some period of time because they had a clear vision for what they wanted to do and they didn't feel some kind of pressure or obligation to drag it out longer than they felt they wanted to. So I, I take that as a good sign that they'll recognize kind of what makes sense and, and where their efforts are best spent. But we'll see. Yeah. I hope so. Um, I also, I, I agree with you that this Wired article, which is in the notes now, is a good read. And I, I, I thought it was interesting for the most part. But the one thing that I, I would sort of push back a little bit on it with is that it it sort of talked about how there was this chicken and egg problem with cereal where they didn't quite have the funding for it initially, particularly with season one, because they weren't sure it was something that people were going to like. And so 
you know, This American Life kind of had to take a risk and put money into it. And then once season one was a huge hit, then that's where all the advertisers came. And it, I don't know, the, the way the way that I read the article was that it was as if this was some novel new thing. But like, isn't this exactly how TV works? I mean, networks don't know what's going to be a hit. And so they have to sort of take a risk with the first season of something and maybe put it up there as a bit of a uh, have a loss leader and then build an audience like I, I don't know i just i i thought it was weird that this was framed as some like unique problem to podcasting so kind of like specifically with your tv example i mean when when uh actually back in the old days like when television networks had like the upfronts and stuff like they would have a pilot episode where they could screen that to advertisers and they would um kind of like based off of who was involved with the show like they would have like some type of lineage to kind of project how successful they thought it might be so i mean it wasn't a totally blind exercise um and like tv shows weren't going like one to two seasons in making no money because they didn't know how it was going to prove itself so i mean i think that's partially true um but yeah but my main issue with it is just acting like serial was the first successful podcast like i know it's 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 still a niche type of um entertainment source um but I, I don't think that was the first podcast that ever got popular. Well, I, I, I totally see where you're coming from. Um, and as, as people who have been listening to podcasts for about 12 years now, we, we would be the ones to say that. But I think there's a lot of truth in that. Serial probably reached the broadest audience that a podcast had ever reached up to that point. So it, which is which is very different from saying that it was the like the most influential podcast or the most important podcast. But I, I do think there's truth in that it reached a broader audience. And with that reach, it sort of maybe opened people's eyes to podcasting and the industry around podcasting in a different way than before. Maybe, or maybe I'm just overestimating how many people um, listen to like This American Life. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, and then in the, in the last the last bit of news in the the podcast about a podcast segment here, you put a link in the thing, which is a new podcast from TechMeme, and you seem you seem pretty excited about that. Uh, not really. I mean, or like it's it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> you like, put the you you put our you put our our rotating light um, marker around it, which made me think that you were excited about it. So I'm not necessarily excited about it. I just think it's interesting. Um, because like, it's not like the daily of technology. Like I, I just, I don't think there's the audience for that. Um, but I do think it's interesting that just that a website that's infinitely useful and has been a reliable aggregator of technology news and stuff for like an entire decade is, um, has felt the need or felt that it would be advantageous to make a, uh, daily news roundup podcast. So I don't know. I think, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, it's, uh, hosted by the guy who does the Internet History podcast, um, which is uh, a very boring but also a fairly interesting uh, podcast that's been going on for the past few years. So if you ever want to hear um, an interview with the former Alta Vista CEO, that's that's the place to get it. <laughs> and I'm not even joking. I swear to God, that was an episode and it was very good. This makes me really miss Buzz Out Loud. Yeah, I still, I still have a few episodes of that on my hard drive and it, and it freaks me out. <laughs> there there definitely there was something to that 20 to 30 minute quick hits of the tech news of the day i don't 
think now with Twitter and just the billion other news sources we have now, maybe that's it's a little less useful. But man, back in you know oh six oh seven, that that was really that was like the the best way that I enjoyed getting my my tech news each day. Yeah, but I, th- I think we were also less busy back then. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, the idea of the idea of having any other daily podcast other than the daily, uh, I, mm, that's probably not going to happen. Even though my my podcast debt now is is looking much much better than it did a few weeks ago, I st- I don't I still don't think I could take on another daily podcast. I, I think you need to, and I really think you need to start listening to Marketplace. Yeah, okay, that's that's fair. Twenty five minutes, it's, it's very good. Um. And if you if you're stuck in the car and you can listen to uh, listen to it on the radio and it'll be distributed by the same people that are doing the uh, the daily on the radio. There you go, full full circle. Um, all right, so let's get into the the obligatory Apple stuff here. Um, I'll ask you another question here about ordering. Do you want to go the Twitter Mac app stuff or do you want to go more? Uh, speculation mode. Let's do the two to, the two quick bits. So I, I've, uh, this was a Ming, was this a KGI thing or a Ming Chi Kuo thing or a Garmin thing? The MacBook Air refresh. I think it was that, KGI. That was a. Is is Ming Chi Kuo? Is he not KGI? Uh, I, he is, but I think sometimes they do stuff that's not him. But basically, Got there it. was a okay. there was a rumor saying that um, the MacBook Air, which has been it's not on its last legs, but it hasn't been updated. It's just been kind of that product that exists that still sells uh, reasonably well because it fits a certain price point in a, in a good spot for users. Um, and it's been a surprise that Apple hasn't discontinued it because people actually like it. And you know how they, they, don't, they don't like the Mac. Um, apparently, they're supposed to be making a version that's slightly cheaper and uh, to either refresh the design or refresh the internals of it. Um, which seems interesting because, again, since it's a product that I think currently exists at $899. Um, you'd think they probably wouldn't pay much attention to. Um, and it's not one of their, like, it's, like I always thought they were trying to force people at that price point into the iPad, so hopefully they could kill off this product, but apparently not. So real-time real follow-up on the sourcing here. So Ming-Chi Kuo is part of KGI. This report about a lower-priced MacBook Air is from a report from Economic Daily, which was in part based on projections from KGI's Ming-Chi Kuo. So we, neither of us was really right there. <laughs> uh, neither of us were really that but, long either. Yeah, but exactly. Um, I thought there was a really good discussion of this on Upgrade this week. I buy into Jason's theory, which is, I think what's most likely is Apple's just going to reduce the price of the current MacBook Air and that they're not going to really do anything in the way of upgrading the MacBook Air. And the reasoning behind that being that the MacBook Air isn't even something that Apple really wants to sell, but because of how well it sells and because of the MacBook's inability to sort of overtake the MacBook Air in large part because of price and because of USB-C incompatibility, that the MacBook Air continues to be a good entry-level option for students and for other more price-conscious laptop buyers. And because price seems to be a primary factor behind 
how well the MacBook Air is done, there's really not much in the way of incentive to continuing to make that product better. But the way that you can continue to sell more of those would be just to lower the price, which again is the thing that people are are most interested in. Maybe I do. T- I do take issue, or not take issue, but I, like I, I want to examine more of the part where you say like Apple doesn't really want to sell this product. Like it's a product that people buy. Like, and it's a problem that they. It, it's a product that I think they do eventually have to update. Like it's like Honda doesn't just say they want to stop selling the Civic because it's. Uh, a cheaper, probably slightly lower margin product in their lineup. Like eventually, if it's something you're selling a lot of, if you do want to have that part of the market, which I think in Tim Cook's Apple, I think he wants to have every part of every market, no matter how complicated it makes their product lineup. Like I, I think they, it still deserves some attention. So I, I myself do not think it's going to be a simple price drop just because the product hasn't been updated in like two or three years and is still using that exact same like core i5 processor or whatever so i think they do have to do something like that doesn't necessarily mean like a retina screen or something like that but i do think it gets some meaningful update if this ever happens well let me i don't know let me maybe change what i said before about them not wanting to sell the macbook air and instead kind of come at it from the angle of don't you think that when apple released the macbook that it was fully intended on that being the computer that sort of officially killed off the air like do you do you not think that apple apple thought that a couple of years post macbook release that they would still be selling the macbook air like do you think that was the original plan yes and no um i think the product is still too expensive like if even if you look beyond all of the horrific limitations it has and reliability issues that it has um I think the price, like that product still starts at like $13.99, doesn't it? I think, I think thereabouts, yeah. I think that's just still too expensive, or at least Apple needs to have something that's lower. I mean, because otherwise, if, if your cheapest laptop starts at $1,400, I think that really opens up the education market and college students that might be on a budget to just go with a $300 Chromebook. Whereas if they have something that's $900, that's at least maybe something they would splurge to have the um prestige or like illusion of prestige that an apple computer gives you yeah that, that's that's probably true yeah uh other rumor things or un- unverified things would be that home pod demand is mediocre sounds plausible probably probable um and i think that's mostly it there was there is something that we've been putting off for quite a while which was uh that a couple of weeks ago Twitter said that they're going to remove support and stop updating the uh, Mac version of their Twitter client. Um, And that on a lot of other shows and and in the tech media has kind of brought the question of what is the health of native applications on the Mac. So I don't know, like, what what do you, what do you think about that? I think it's a reasonable thing to be concerned about. I mean, More broadly speaking, I think the general concern of the Mac as a platform is is warranted. I I, I don't think the Mac is going to end tomorrow, or that even Apple and any sort of long term roadmap has any plans to to get rid of the Mac. But it it really is a it's a numbers game here, where iOS sells so much more broadly and 
again, going back to the idea of reaching a broader audience, like we were talking about with Serial, it reaches such a broader audience in the Mac that it, it, it just has to command more of Apple's attention. I mean, that's that's just, Apple would be negligent if they spent more time focusing on the Mac than they did iOS. And I think because of that, you know, questions around how much effort and energy Apple's going to continue putting into the Mac is a is a reasonable question. And if people do start to get the sense that Apple isn't pushing the Mac, then there's almost this self-fulfilling prophecy where app developers could potentially become less interested in the Mac. Although, I mean, I, I kind of put all that out there without entirely entirely agreeing with it. I, I think there are other issues with Mac development, a lot of which relate to kind of the poor implementation of the Mac app store. I think that's where a lot of the, the problems come up here. Um, but again, I, I don't, I don't think it's unreasonable for people to feel concerned about the Mac and about the kind of the broader ecosystem around the Mac. So I would say a lot of that is true. Like to the specific question at hand, I think a lot of this is just Twitter being dumb and, and misallocating resources. I think a company with the headcount that it has and the product development expenditures that it has uh, could spare the talent and time to make a competent Twitter app, or at the very least, eliminate most of the restrictions they have on um, supporting and enabling third-party Twitter clients to actually be good. So I think, I think like for the issue at hand, that's that's the biggest part. Um, but I do think, and this has been covered at length, and I think you you touched upon it slightly, is that like non-native Mac applications, like a lot of like the Electron stuff, is maybe concerning as to whether or not, due to the imbalance of like Mac versus mobile device shipments, um, kind of what is worth a developer's time, and shortcuts and and other frameworks that allow you to kind of not make a native application or are becoming more attractive, which overall will probably in the end end up undermining the Mac as a as a good platform for people to be. Like I don't I don't think the Mac in traditional computing ever goes away. But um harder to develop for the Mac but, or not putting in a lot of effort is probably not doing it any favors, but I'm not sure they really care to change that. Right. So then I guess the the last bit of Apple stuff here um is um kind of more more speculation about um what's on apple's roadmap this year uh, there have been some reports around uh, what we're going to see in um, ios 12 there have been reports around uh, new airpods which we've previously talked about there's now some new reporting around a face id ipad pro which obviously please no, please no. <laughs> but but makes a ton of sense like that's that's the direction clearly apple's going to go with um um their iOS products. And I a quick quick little aside, there there's been some uh reporting out there also that people seem to be having a more positive experience with Face ID over time, which that was one of the things Apple said was that Face ID would continue to learn and get and you know get better as they as they gathered more data. And I, I before that reporting had come out I had had a similar thought in recent weeks where Face ID does seem to be a little bit quicker than it used to. It's still it's still half a step too slow. It's still not where Touch ID was, but 
I've actually grown to be happier with it than I was initially. That is not my experience. Hmm. Well, a- anyway, it's it's yeah, yeah I, I'm with you that I'm I'm a little worried about Face ID kind of taking over everything. I I would rather there be kind of a Face ID two first, and then kind of have that um, go across the product line. Uh, but in any case, a, a Face ID iPad uh, makes total sense. So the hardware stuff. So on the phone, have you found a better way to get it to recognize your face without having to lift up the phone every time? Um, well, so like at work, when I have my phone in its inductive charging stand, even though it's at a bit of an angle, I can just tap the screen and without moving the phone in any way, it will detect my face just about every time. Um, and I've also found that I can have the phone at, at pretty extreme angles and also have it, have it work pretty well. Hmm. Not all the time. And again not as good as touch id where it, it doesn't matter where i'm looking but but it does it does work um pretty well um although <laughs> one use case um which i'll be putting to the test again this weekend where it it really falls down is skiing <laughs> because obviously if you have any sort of like um face mask or face cover on or i think even like with your goggles um, and then, of course, with like a helmet, when you've got all this gear on your on your face, uh, face ID just doesn't doesn't really work. And that's, you know, that's a bummer. Although, but wouldn't you, you have know, the same th- problem with uh, wearing mittens? and, and ex- such? Exactly. That, exactly. So it's, it's not really a net loss, although it's easier to take off a ski glove and do touch ID than it is to like take your goggles off and anything else off your face to get face ID to work. Um. But anyway, that's a bit of an aside. But the, I don't know, the, the thing that I sort of wanted to get at a little bit here is I think the hardware roadmap for this year is really predictable and for the most part, pretty iterative. I don't, I don't really think there's going to be much in the way of dramatic new hardware this year. I think what's more interesting is speculating around what iOS 12 and the next version of macOS, whatever California <laughs> landmark we get this year. Um, so I'm curious, like kind of like what you either what you think we're gonna get, or maybe sort of like what you would want to see in the next version of iOS and macOS. So I think it really depends on whether or not that rumored change of Apple maybe lengthening uh, time between release cycles to get a hold of stability and and refinements to the code base um, actually ends up taking shape. So is that a thing that starts this year? So do we maybe just get um, a very basic iOS 12 release? Or do, like, there's no way there's not an iOS 12, right? Like, even if they did choose to make it a, um, like, a, a more, like, stability fix release, like, it, it's not, they're not going to say, oh, yeah, we're going to, we're just going to be, this year at WWDC, we're going to talk about iOS 11.4, right? I, I, I think, I think, like, we've talked about before, for, marketing reasons it's going to be hard for them to get away from the branding of having a new full version of ios every year even though under the hood ios 12 might kind of functionally be like 11.4 got it and then with os 10 i assume that pressure is 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 much lower specifically because the whole annual release cycle of a traditional desktop operating system was completely a 
self-mandated requirement and has generally panned out to to not be a very smart move. So in terms of like the the next version of iOS, like I honestly don't know. I think it's still buggy all around and there's just like a lot of lack of refinement. And overall, the system hasn't fundamentally changed since the original version of iOS. Like there's been some enhancements to notifications, some enhancements to other things. Um, and in terms of like cosmetic design and that kind of stuff, it's stayed mostly the same since iOS 7. So, I mean, like, I don't, I don't know, like I kind you kind of do want dramatic change, but you also worry about what the stability impacts of that would be. So, um, yeah, I really have no idea what they're going to do this year with that. So what about like, what, what do you, what do you want to see? Like, are, is there any big gaping feature that either Mac OS and or iOS doesn't have that you really want to see? Uh, for Mac OS specifically, it's, it's all just about, uh, stability. That's it. Like to the point where like I, I am still resistant to install High Sierra due to just like the number of like just really weird bugs and glitches it still has, like even beyond the show stopping ones. So I really wish they would pull like a Snow Leopard release on this type of thing, even though that is wasn't that allegedly what High Sierra was supposed to be? Like that was the whole point of the high in the name was just like that this could be more of an iterative release. That's when APFS is gonna come out and that kind of stuff, but it just never really happened. Right, like this was going to be the the snow leopard or the you know next mountain lion or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. So so that that's mostly what I would appreciate. Like I think overall OS ten is fairly mature. It's just because of that annual release cycle, it's actually gotten worse in a lot of ways. Where maybe like El Capitan and whatever were probably some of the more stable releases, and the stuff they've added since hasn't really been all that useful. Um, so that's all I really hope for there. Um, it would be kind of interesting if, well, if we're just talking about like a, a complete pie in the sky wish list, I would I would prefer like a new networking stack that allowed native support for cellular modems so that they could actually put an LTE chip in a MacBook Pro and, and make me happy, but that'll never happen. Yeah, with with mobile hotspot being a feature in iOS, that, that just doesn't seem like something that's going to happen. Even though it doesn't solve the problem that you're describing, I just think that Apple sort of thinks it does. Or if they could make the mobile hotspot pairing thing work. <laughs> that would be a start yeah because it is getting better but it's still only like a 60 percent hit rate for me which is which is uh, bothersome enough where i just i get mad and i just use my android i just use my pixel every every time i connect my mac to my iphone for internet access which isn't very often but when i i almost always have to do it at least twice to get it to work so like 100 percent of the time it works 50 percent of the time that's an improper fraction. Um, <laughs> so with Iowa, with iOS 12, um, yeah, I mean, like for me, it, it notifications are still a gosh darn mess. Yes, where, yes. And that's one of the things about the iPhone 10 where I, I, I do like the privacy angle of it. And they made some improvements there where on iOS 11, you can like hide all notification detail by default. Um, but still the granularity of notifications and managing them is like, if you, if you ever want to adjust how a notification works, you go to settings, you go to notifications, and if you have 200 apps on your iPhone, it literally just shows them there. Um, and you have to scroll down through every single one to get to the same exact setting screen. So I don't know, like it, it is still a mess of how that works. Um, and that, there's just a lot of stuff on, on iOS that's still just kind of ridiculously simple. Like I know we'll never get it, but if, um, like if, if Siri got revamped, but I also got... Uh, ways to integrate with I, I know they won't but with spotify or google maps or finding a way to to allow it to integrate with apps that somebody would prefer to use rather than the built-in defaults that would be great um but that'll never happen 
yeah, I, I, I think that that would be pretty high up my list too. But yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. Where I don't think that's going to happen. I think notifications is a fantastic call out. I mean, it, notifications are just a mess, particularly when you get into notifications across devices and between the iPhone and Apple Watch and and just just the granularity of settings just on the on the phone itself. Notifications are kind of a kind of a mess. Yeah. Um, speaking of a mess. <laughs> um, this, the, I guess, the last bit of Apple stuff for this week is around um, kind of phone life cycles and maybe starting specifically here with the whole iPhone battery thing, which kind of happened over the holidays. And I don't think we really ended up talking about it much on the show. Um, it was kind of again in the news this week because of a, a, a Verge article that you put in the thing, which I'll throw in the notes here, with the pre- basic premise being that. Um, this this Verge writer James Vincent is is upset that Apple didn't tell him about the battery replacement program earlier, um, and and that was kind of coupled with I finally got around to listening to the episode of the talk show with Jason Snell that came out on like New Year's Eve or New Year's Day um, over the holidays, and they had a really long and I thought really really good discussion about the battery issue, which I thought was insightful detailed and i thought it was really fair where both john and jason called out apple where they should be called out but then also kind of clarified or pushed back on some areas where they had been called out where they were being called out somewhat unfairly um and they really sort of i don't know changed the way that i think about sort of batteries where you know, like Gruber kept using the kind of gas tank analogy, which is really effective and kind of admittedly how I've always kind of thought about batteries. And the reality is that it's a lot more complicated than that, where providing power to certain parts of the system, particularly as iPhones have gotten more and more complex and the variation of power that's needed at any given time has become a lot more varied. It You know, making sure that the battery has the necessary ability to be able to output you know the right amount of power at any given time isn't just as simple as like tapping into a gas tank so anyway i I thought i thought that was a really good discussion and um i i think this this the whole battery argument's definitely a lot more nuanced than a lot of people have made it which i mean surprise surprise people aren't being very nuanced on the internet um but anyway, I'll I'll put a link to the notes for that talk show episode as well because I I think it it was a it was a good listen and again made me kind of think about the the whole battery thing a little bit differently. I do I, I do really find it amusing that that you listened to that episode like four months late and that Jason Snell's going to be on the talk show again this week. I I was about an hour from finishing the episode when he tweeted that yesterday, and yeah, I had a, I had a pretty good chuckle at that. It's, it's like you waited so long to see a Star Wars movie that there was literally another Star Wars movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, oh, speaking of that, we should, we should talk about that. Um, yeah, never mind. We'll, we'll save that for another week. Um, talk, talk about what? Uh, somebody, somebody made the point that, um, that unless a movie has international appeal now, that movies don't get made anymore. And that, did, uh, and that Bob Iger uh, just thinks uh, that unless it's a Star Wars movie or some franchise movie, he doesn't think it's worth making because he's a... Uh, a businessman rather than an artist. It's actually a pretty good interview. Um, hmm. But it does make sense that uh, the Star Wars movies now are less about artistic and creative expression. It's more of just a, 
uh, a like a cinematic ATM machine. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, ATM. Please don't. Please don't. Right. <laughs> um, what were we talking about? Okay. Yes. Yeah, so, so the battery thing. I mean, I think it is very tricky. Like, I, and I, I usually do not come to Apple's defense that often these days. But um, yes, yeah, so it's like it's stupid articles like the one in in The Verge is is just not helping the situation because I, I I don't think it should be the obligation of the manufacturer to find ways to prevent you from buying a new product. I think Apple, for the most part, has been fairly reliable in um, keeping extended software update support so that you get a, a secure device for longer and you get uh, new features for a longer period of time than most manufacturers would. I mean, hell, like if you think about most Android phones, um, you are so lucky if you get to see the next version of Android after your phone came out. So I think they're pretty good with that. The whole battery throttling thing, I mean, we discussed that in the past. Like, it, It's a dumb situation, and it's not like there was a great answer for them um, with what to do about the restarting iPhone 6 and iPhone 6S models, but it, it, it is obvious that they chose wrong. But it is still like a really complicated situation. That's it's 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 like social security reform. Like there are no good options, but they they clearly chose the wrong one. Yeah, I mean com- communication was clearly a huge issue, and one of the things that I thought was most well done in that episode of the talk show was pointing out the fact that to a large extent, Apple faces the same battery limitations that any other manufacturer does, but they sort of exaggerate the problem by putting thinness over functionality. And I think that that's with a brand new iPhone out of the box, they, they get away with that. But when that phone becomes two or three years old, where having more battery capacity could become particularly useful, they've again, prioritized thinness over that extra battery. And I I think it's, it's very fair to, to criticize Apple for that. Yeah. But they, they switched that up with the 10 this generation, right? They did, bit. and that's right. They they did, and I I hope that that's a sign that Apple is sort of shifting those priorities around a little bit. Yeah. Um, and this this sort of connects into the kind of a broader idea that that seemed to get some attention this week, uh, both between the news that Best Buy was closing their standalone mobile stores, um, and this other Wall Street Journal article that just gets into the general idea that people's love of their old smartphones is sort of a, a problem for Apple and Samsung. I think that's really interesting in that it it's just it, it seems like deja vu all over again with the computer industry where like for years and years and years upgrading your computer on a regular basis made a lot of sense because there were these huge incremental speed gains and and new features and performance that you'd get by doing so. And it's just kind of unlike it just it's just feels like all of a sudden now that the smartphone market is rapidly maturing and and maturing, I guess, just a lot more quickly than I would have expected. Like it's just it, it feels a little weird now, like almost having gone through the entire life cycle of a product category all the way through inception to almost full maturity yeah i mean i think we're probably still another five years away from from full maturity on that type of thing and i and i think uh, it is sort of by design that sealed in batteries do 
hasten upgrade cycles more than they would. But I mean, yeah, I I I, I see people with like four year old devices, and and they're not holding up. So like, sure, maybe an iPhone eight or an iPhone ten is going to have a longer lifespan than most other phones. But I don't know. Like, do you think the um the whole battery gate thing is like driving awareness to not just people with the, the affected devices, but everybody as to these phones are more than like two to three year upgrade cycle devices. Like, do you think that supports the case or do you think this will probably kind of go away? Cause people think this is more of like a product recall thing rather than a fundamental way of rethinking like the disposability of the devices. It, I mean, it's so hard to say, like getting back to what I was talking about earlier with it being kind of a nuanced thing. I, I, I just I just don't know. I, I'm not, I don't know how people are sort of parsing out this news. And I buy into a lot of what Gruber talked about on the talk show, not not to keep going back to the episode, but I, I really do think it brought up a lot of good points, one of which was I, I think there are many more prevalent reasons, most of which have to do with iOS, that cause older iPhones to run slower than this battery issue like this battery issue is certainly part of the problem but i don't know how big of a part of that problem it really is i think i think there are many other things that cause older phones to run slower and I, I, i'm just i'm not i'm not sure how all of that really is gonna shake out and not to keep rehashing that very good episode of the of the talk show but do you because th- I think or I, I don't know if it was the Six Colors podcast or if it was that episode of the talk show, but um, Jason made the point that it's probably really likely at Apple that they just have near zero engineering resources designed uh, allocated to making sure that newer versions of iOS run well on anything that's not the newest version of the phone. Do you think that changes at all because of this? I don't know. Yeah, because like because it's a compounding problem. Like the fact that they actually put in code to throttle the processor to prevent random shutdowns, which which is an engineering solution that does effectively solve a problem, but has is maybe a a very blunt tool. Is it their responsibility to optimize for old old devices? Uh, to it to an extent, I think. Um, but I I just I don't know. Like I. I also don't know it's 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 such a fine line because I also don't like I, I don't think it's reasonable to just assume that as soon as the next version of iOS comes out that your old phone is going to become obsolete but I'm also not sure how reasonable it is to expect that newer versions of iOS are going to run just as well on an older piece of hardware as the latest piece of hardware like you would you would never really expect that with Windows or maybe even Mac OS, even though that's it's becoming a that's becoming a bit of a harder analogy because computers are just so fast now that it's it's hard for operating systems to like run significantly better or worse across most modern processors. But well, I mean, I think Windows ninety five ran a lot worse than Windows three point one one on a four eighty six. <laughs> but <laughs> I think that's really but you're getting it yeah i mean you're getting at what i'm saying which is it that certainly used to be the case but now it's it's not quite as good of an analogy but and i think i think it'll i think in a way like somebody who's trying to load ios 10 or 11 on an iphone 5 like that's that's a rough situation and apple of course doesn't like there's no like apple is very um 
good at, at finding a way for your phone to update itself, whether or not you would necessarily in, intend to or not. So like, is it ever their responsibility to put some type of warning or say that a, this device is, does not meet our um, recommended performance characteristics for this operating system release? Like after two full release cycles, when realistically, like opening up a page in Safari will be slower on this release because of other things. Yeah, I it, it's it's a I don't know it, it's a really it, it's a tough it's it, it's a tough gray area. I don't think there's a I don't think there's a hundred percent correct answer on either side. I think the FCC, uh, FTC should take a look at that. Somebody should look into that. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. What else? So, how, so how, how are you doing over there? It's getting 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 late your time. Oh, I'm 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 doing fine. I can I don't sleep anymore. It's good. Okay, good. Um, let's do one or two more things. Um, yeah, well, have we? I think we actually. Let's, let's. This is actually maybe more follow up than anything else because I think we actually talked about this once. But there's a there's a company that makes a lot of accessories. A lot of them mainly for um, uh, Apple and Mac stuff. Uh, but it's Elevation Labs, and they published a, an article or a blog post that went viral about um, counterfeit goods on Amazon. And since the last time we talked about it, do you think it's gotten better or worse in terms of the counterfeiting problem or the um, maybe illegitimate goods that are no that are not shipped and sold on Amazon? Like, how's that going? I. I guess I've not personally been affected by this and I would chalk that up to me generally putting quite a bit of time into researching products before I buy them from Amazon unless it's like really truly basic like name brand stuff like you know apartment supplies or bathroom stuff or whatever but I can totally see where this would be an issue because when you do a search for something like elevation dock, iPhone stand, or something similar to that, the the results that you get, unless you really know what you're looking for, can be messy and kind of overwhelming. And I I, I think it it would be completely reasonable for someone to inadvertently buy something from a brand they didn't intend to well but in in this specific case it's even it's even worse than that which is that um because you know on when when you go to a product page usually there's a link on the right hand side that says uh sell your own like like let's say you got a gift of a casper mattress that somebody is and you didn't want it and you wanted to sell that like you can list that on there and what somebody else is doing is listing it as being the exact same price but it being a counterfeit good so somebody is going to the right product page, but they're unable to, or but they're being shown a product that's claiming to be legitimate, but it's totally a counterfeit good and it's being undercut on price by just some, some Chinese manufacturer. But don't you, in order to get to that page though, don't you have to like click through the button that says like see other buying options or something like that? A lot of times Amazon, if your price is lower and you are like a high volume seller, it will, um, put that first because i found that a lot when i'm when i'm looking for the um i'm always scouting out a deal for on the harmony elite remote which i still have to come <laughs> by um yeah like if, if you are either like fulfilled by amazon or you have I, I forget what the requirements are there's a point at which um either the product will say like available at a lower price um from sellers other than amazon or without prime shipping or something or if you are fulfilled by amazon 
and you have that um, and you have a lower price, it'll show you that instead. Or if Amazon happens to be out of stock on it. So I'm like, people should read the article because it did have a really interesting um, point, which is like you should be able to um, say that you don't want other people to be able to sell your item if you don't yourself sell through like uh, indirect channels because otherwise there wouldn't be a way for somebody to obtain your goods. So therefore the counterfeiting um, likelihood would be high. And they also made a great point, which is uh, Amazon <laughs> as, as always uh, doesn't necessarily play by their own rules because if you look at any Amazon basics product, uh, you can't sell your own. That option is entirely disabled. Hmm. So it's a, it's a little bit of sketchiness all around. Actually, no, well, mainly with Amazon. So I, th- I think it's a problem that they should fix, but I think it's a problem where, um, what's another example? It's, it's just kind of like willful ignorance, just because you, you it, it's a problem you could solve, but you, it's kind of like the Twitter harassment problem. Like it, it's facilitating sales, so therefore your incentive to squash the issue is 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 fairly low, and you can make you can go through the motions and pretend like you care, but Overall, it's it's driving interactions and engagement, and 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 overall, uh, it's a profitable enterprise. So you kind of just don't care. Yeah, there's there's definitely a bit of a a conflict of interest around really truly wanting to solve the problem. It's not solving the problem is not a universal uh, good thing for them. Yeah. And then lastly, uh, Google Hangouts has a Slack competitor. Allegedly, have you done any research in this? I I haven't because I I'm in constant fear that hang, Hangouts as I know it is gonna go away because <laughs> uh, Google just clearly wants to push all these other alternatives and I I actually happen to like the way that Hangouts currently works so anytime I see something that seems like it's gonna change change that platform I I, I get nervous. Got it. Do you know what the Hmm. You you don't ever use Android devices, do you? I don't. Have you ever heard of Allo and Duo? I have, and that, that's what that's what I'm talking about. Where it, it's it it's been initiatives like that that have concerned me. That that's my question. What what is the difference between Allo and Hangouts, or are they just different ways of interacting this with the same product? I have no idea. I I think um, <laughs> there's been a lot of fun made of Google's general messaging strategy. Uh, and how there's not a good message around said strategy, but um, yeah, I, I have I have no idea how all that fits together. And, that, and I think that's part of what makes me anxious is because I don't know if like Allo and Duo if those are intended to be Hangout replacements or not. And I don't even think Google's been explicit one way or the other about that. You're implying that you're not even sure they know <laughs> exactly. Uh, and is Hangouts the thing that's built into like the the sidebar in Gmail? Or is that a different thing in and of itself? It that that's that's the yeah that's it. Okay. All right. I think everything else we can probably push till next week. So you want to jump into Chef Special? Let's do it. Yeah, I've got I've got a good one this week. I'm excited about mine. <laughs> Go um, for it. You're building it up. So I will I will send you uh, the link here in the thing. Um, it's a so dog. I <laughs> oh. there's a dog in it. Um, so this is uh, Coco, which excellent movie, saw it in theaters. So the, the movie itself is sort of part of the pick. But last week it came out on Blu-ray and um, 
I don't even really know what the official word or name for this is, but 4K Ultra HD, I guess, as Disney puts it. Um, but 4, 4K Blu-ray, whatever. Um, so I, I, I picked up a copy of the movie in in Ultra HD, 4K, whatever. Um, and it, in addition to being a fantastic movie, which we've already established, it is a really, really sharp looking movie, particularly in 4K on an OLED TV with HDR and, and all that good stuff. And I actually even remember thinking when I saw it in theaters, like, man, this is going to be, it's going to be a good looking like movie on a, on an OLED screen. And sure enough, I mean, it is, it's, it's a, it's a tremendous way of, of showing off your, your fancy OLED TV. Cause it just, it looks really, really good. Yep. It was, it was a good movie. Um, does, if you buy a movie on Amazon or iTunes, um, does it, since their content is available in 4k, do you know if you benefit from the HDR part? So this is where it gets really tricky. And this is why I ultimately just bought it on disc is because Apple still doesn't support Disney movies in 4k. Mm. So you, you can't buy Disney movies on the iTunes store and get them in 4k. And which means you also don't get the HDR functionality. Cause I, I don't think Apple sells any movies where it, it's you just get HDR as opposed to getting both HDR and 4K. It kind of comes as a as a package deal. Sure. But with the Apple TV, normally when you when you purchase a 4K movie, so a, a non Disney movie, yes, you you do get the benefit of uh, HDR10 or Dolby Vision depending on the movie, along with um, the 4K resolution. So if Disney and Apple had come to a business agreement where they were offering their movies in 4K, I probably would have just gone that route. Amazon, I'm not sure about, um, but you know, I I sort of ultimately just decided to to get it on disc because you you also do, it's it, the the difference has become less and less noticeable, but you you do always get the slightly higher quality um, bit rate and quality on a on a disc as opposed to streaming, and this this kind of felt like a movie where it, you know you you really want to to kind of get all of that out of it. Sure. Yeah, I, I assume the uncompressed version is, is probably pretty great. Right. Um, and then when you say you saw it originally in theaters, does that also mean you, you, you cried in the theater or no? So it's a movie where we, we, we won't get in any spoilers here, but there there's a moment near the end of the movie where you can really go one of two directions. You can either just completely ball your eyes out or you can <laughs> kind of take a deep breath and make it through the movie without crying. I, I think I mostly held it together, um, in the theater, definitely teared up some when watching it at home here this last week. Um, because, because it's, because it's, it's a tear trigger for sure. <laughs> that's yeah, that's right. That's right. It was really the HDR that brought it out. Yeah. Oh, good times. But yeah, it, again, you get great, great movie and a, a good, good showpiece for uh 4k and HDR. Oscar winning film. That's right. Yeah, that's right. All right. I don't think I've already made this a pick because it's, I just got it a month ago, but if there is, please let me know. Um, have I chosen this before? Uh, let's take a look in the thing. I don't think so. Or if you have, it's been long enough where I've forgotten about it. Good. Okay. So this, uh, this week I am talking about the, uh, 
Manfrotto Pixie Mini Tripod, uh, which is the cheapest camera accessory I think I've ever purchased. Um, and it is one of the most versatile and awesome tripods I've ever used. Um, so it is absolutely tiny. It fits in my messenger bag. Um, it makes it super easy to, to screw in a heavier mirrorless camera into it. And it's just a super versatile tripod and, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of perfect. No, it has been kind of an unsung hero on, uh, this trip and also, um, photography expeditions I've done recently. So so it's amazingly small and really good. So you can use this with both a phone or a standalone camera, it looks like. Um, have you ever heard of it? It's a company called Studio Neat. They make a thing called the Glyph that you can use to add um, a traditional tripod mount to a phone. So yeah, you'd have to combine that with this if you wanted to do that. But otherwise, this just has the standard little um, screw-in mount that most um, DSLRs or higher-end cameras have. So what, w- so what would be like a example or a situation where you'd use this? Um, any place you want to set your camera down. Because <laughs> generally, like, if, you, if you're going to take a, like, a, either a longer exposure picture or you want to have like a, tri- a small tripod set up for something, um, like any type of nighttime shots. Well, hold on, let me... Um, another thing. This is probably going to make my internet connection die, but it'll be fine. But yeah, anytime you want to take like a longer exposure shot where you don't want to like go and actually take um, any big equipment, but you also want to have like an exposure time greater than like a tenth of a second, you generally need a tripod and you generally don't want to put a $3,000 camera on the ground because it probably won't give you the angle, <laughs> the angle that you want and it's going to totally screw up your camera. Wow, that's a, yeah, that's a really nice picture. But this, but no, this uh, tripod is, is very good. And the thing is, with most of this kind of stuff, whenever you find, like, you know, like, it, you know, the company like OXO for kitchen stuff? Yes. Yeah, like, it's them and a few others that make really, really good products. Like, like, like you're like, this is, this is well made and well designed, but it's always like super, super expensive for what it is. This, for some reason, I have no idea why, but it's, it's not expensive. Yeah, even just looking at the picture of it, it seems like a really sturdily made piece of gear. Yep. Leave it to the Italians. I have no idea if this is an Italian company, but it sounds like it is. What else would Manfrotto be? Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a reasonable guess. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, safe, safe travels. And uh, you'll, be, you'll be coming at us back on the, uh, the best coast uh, next week. Exactly right.